Looking to generate more revenue and build relationships with gamers worldwide? Let Exola be your guide. Exola, a global video game commerce company, has helped thousands of game developers and publishers of all sizes fund, market, launch, and monetize their games globally and across multiple platforms. To learn more, please visit xsolla.pro slash A-O-I-A-A-S. Hi, this is Austin Wintry, and this is The Game Maker's Notebook. Today, I am talking with Nanita Desai, the composer of Sam Barlow's two most recent games, Immortality and Telling Lies. Uh, she's a relative newcomer to games, and you'll see in the conversation why I put that in quotes. Um, but her last two games have both uh, been just striking in their originality and personality, um, and she's brought a lot to them in her collaboration with Sam. She has this wonderful kind of polymath and um, cultural melting pot of a background in childhood that we get into, and just generally uh, was overflowing with insights as I grilled her on uh, her process, and particularly in tackling these two very unique games. So uh, I had a really wonderful time chatting with her, and I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to The Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. All right, Nanita, thank you for doing this. (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's lovely to see you um, again. Yeah, likewise. Yeah, sadly, uh, uh, missed you. Uh, You were at Ghent, if I I understand correctly. I was indeed. Had a wonderful time in Ghent uh, with our fellow composer buddies and uh, industry folk. And it was great. A couple of great concerts, actually. the Korean concert was very out there, very wacky. I loved it. It's good fun. <laughs> <laughs> you do, yes. I think your love of, of all things wacky uh, shows up in your writing. We will undoubtedly get into that uh, a bit later. But uh, obviously this show being uh, centered around uh, game development more broadly and, and our chat, of course, game music more specifically, it's nice that Ghent, the World Soundtrack Awards, is starting to gradually crack the seal uh, open in the direction of games. I know that they don't they don't currently, unless I somehow didn't hear about it this year, uh, they don't currently do an award for game music, but they they have kind of shown, um, a, a, you know, each year kind of progressively more yes. interest in game music after yeah. many years of supporting film and TV very steadfastly and like documentaries and all the rest of it in ways that many others don't. Yeah, no, one step closer. And I, I did air my opinions as well about um, games music uh, for Ghent. And it's something that I know is in very serious development. Um, so that's, uh, I think there's some exciting developments for next year uh, at the very least. So uh, maybe we'll see you. What a shock. <laughs> yeah, well, I think... Fingers crossed. Uh, I, I, I am I am utterly not shocked that you were air, airing your opinions uh, <laughs> as someone who who uh, immediately makes the impression of 
of not uh, holding back one's uh, thoughts, uh, I mean, in the best way. So tell you what, let's um, – one thing I actually don't know, as much as, as I've been able to enjoy chatting with you um, here and there over the last few years and really kind of getting an insight into your process and the wonderful kind of consistently unique nature of what you do, one thing I don't actually really know – is where it all started for you. You know, I, I've always delighted in the fact that composers' origin stories are so different. That you know, one person met that perfect teacher at the right moment. Another just picked up a, a dusty instrument they found mm-hmm. in a grandparent's attic. All that kind of thing. There's there's a thousand variations across a thousand composers. Um, where did you start? What age? What kind of got you into it? I, I don't actually know the answer to this. Well, no, good good question. I, I mean, it, and, and also being able to self-reflect. I, I'm not a, I'm not the kind of person that dwells on the past. I'm always constantly pushing forward, <laughs> looking to the future. Um, I find it kind of depressing looking at the past all the time. But, but, uh, but sometimes I think it's, it's, it's interesting, you know, to, to reflect. Um, so for me, I, I guess, you know, it's, it's funny because I, I got this funny award last year called the Discovery of the Year Award at Ghent. Go to uh-huh. Ghent again. And I thought, I'm, I'm an overnight success, which took sort of 30 years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I remember so- the exact same thing happening to Jeff Beal when House of Cards exploded and everybody went, wow, who's this Jeff Beal guy? And meanwhile, he'd been consistently working in TV and had won Emmys and all kinds of things for like in excess of 20 years before I that. I know. Point. I know. But it, it invariably happens. Yeah, yeah. I'm a huge fan of Jeff Beal, by the way, and House of Cards. I, I got to meet him in New York about five, six weeks ago. Um, so I was uh, yeah, waxing lyrical <laughs> about his score. But for me, where I he's started, great. yeah, yeah, he's he's great. He's an amazing composer and um and trumpet player, um, but mm-hmm. um, so yeah, so I, I mean, I, my my, you know, t- in terms of being sort of like discovery or, or breakthrough, my career mm-hmm. has been nothing but a series of constant breakthroughs. I'm always just sort of breaking through, and and so I broke through at the age of five or six when I started to learn the piano and the violin, and and I was very fortunate in that I had free music lessons. Uh, mm something we just do not have anymore in the UK in our in our primary and secondary uh, educational system so I was in the school orchestra um, at the age of eight playing violin and um, scratching away <laughs> badly <laughs> was this at the behest of your parents like what prompted the that initial I guess I'll try these instruments well, no, I mean, it was like every child was given the option to play a musical instrument and have free lessons. So I thought, you know, I was, uh, I thought, okay, I'll, I'll play the violin. That's what was thrust upon me and the piano. And I didn't have a piano at home. So I had, I went to a Church of England school uh, uh-huh. during the day, Monday to Friday, I was at a Church of England school. So I was in school choirs. I went to church and sang in school in choirs and Latin and gospel and pop choirs and and so so I wanted to be a singer at the age of eight. I wanted to inhabit Barbara Streisand and and uh, and and be a, a you know I love musical theatre. I used to go to um, as a young teenager. There's this famous bookshop called Foils on Charing Cross Road, mm-hmm. and I used to walk up you know spend my 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 allowance, sort of 
taking the the train up to to Foyle's bookshop, going to the fourth floor and pouring through musical theater, you know, song books and wow. song time and um and I was going to ask if you had any favorites from that time. Oh, well, I mean I was a I was a big fan of um Sondheim musicals and and of course Barbara Streisand was my way into musicals, you know, with Hello Dolly, Yentl. Uh, oh, yeah. Big fan of Yentl. Um and uh, Michel Legrand and Alan and Marilyn Bergman and that's what introduced one of the introductions I had to film music through song in film. Mm-hmm. Um and then uh, but you know going back um, you know, learning the violin and the piano at school and, and singing at, at the weekend. I was I was brought up. I'm a second generation British Asian Asian, so I had to go to the Hindu temple. So I have I had a very eclectic um, a musical mm. background, and I was then uh, forced actually to learn the sitar and the tablas to embrace my Indian heritage, uh, which I really rebelled against i really pushed back against that i hated playing the sitar uh because <laughs> because my guru insisted that i was had this really strict um discipline regime of never progressing beyond scales you know even for the first 6 months of learning the instrument i had to play the scales and supremely um, classical education. Uh, yeah. And, and very rigid and very formal. And, you know, my hand had to be pl- placed in a certain way. The fingers would be bent in a certain way. And if I didn't do it correctly, I'd be wrapped across the knuckles and my fingers would be bleeding with, oh God. with, with the steel strings of the instrument. And, but I did learn, I, I did take up the tablets, which I really, really loved. I, I'm a big sucker for rhythm and um, unusual meters and, and and time signatures, and that's um, uh, so that's something that stayed with me. You know, it was a big uh, something that I really really loved. Um, sort of learning the tablas, and it was a very male um, instrument to learn. It was very physical and quite physically demanding you know playing the tablas and and getting tones out of it you know requires a lot of pressure so um and it was a very unfamiliar- it's also probably pretty phenomenal ear training I, I i remember once um dabbling in uh ragas uh sort of the traditionally structured ragas and and sort of broad indian classical music for a uh, little hbo short film i did like 15 years ago it was a very early mm-hmm. Uh, project and I remember I hired a bunch of Indian musicians and to first to kind of just teach me the the basic ins and outs as much as I could in a short span and yeah. I remember I was using a sample of tablas and uh-huh. I remember the singer I, I had this wonderful singer and she came in and she listened to the track and she goes these are pitched wrong uh, she said who who played these and I was very embarrassed I said well actually that was part of the one budget item I couldn't reach to I, I had to use samples and she was like but this is they're literally the wrong pitch for what for what this kind of music is, yeah. and it blew my mind because I remember thinking, "Wow, the the nuance that is grilled into you to perceive and to react to within this tradition." It was a very eye opening experience to me of just how much these instruments, even percussion, which we think of as non pitched in the West broadly, other than you know obvious yes. exceptions, mallets and that kind of thing, yes. Yes. Uh, we think of it as non pitched, and 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 in the uh, in the Indian, at least this particular Indian tradition, it was like, "No, no, no, no." They're very much. They're borderline a melody instrument uh, yeah, in their own right. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know one of my musical heroes was uh, Zaki Hussein, who played. Um, he's still a, he's a legend in his own time, in his own lifetime. And I think he played with people like Packard Luthier and and uh, Shankar and. Uh, this, there was a whole sort of Vinu Vinayakram who plays the Guttam, which is this clay pot. And he's got this this mm. little South, Indian man from South India who has this big pot belly and he sits playing this potted pot instrument made of clay. And um, I used to go to the, the South Bank and uh, John McLaughlin on guitar, Vinu Vinayakram, um, uh, Shankar on violin. These were sort of was, they were. It was the heyday of Indian jazz improvisation, and it's really lovely to see. I've been. Re- I recently discovered the Berkeley uh, Indian on- Ensemble. I think they have a huge following uh, on mm. social media, and uh, it's a group of musicians who uh, are at Berkeley, and uh, they're all. Playing the South Asian um, uh, sort of discipline, South Asian in South Indian classical music, and they are phenomenal to to watch and to play. So, um, so yeah. So I'm digressing. Um, so no, I, but this is all deeply. I mean, the, the, this kind of melting pot hmm. of influences. You know, the, the the kind of British and or Western generally kind of classical education mixing with this kind of I love the I love the begrudging uh sort of honoring of one's heritage um is a very funny uh like it's a very classic sort of child perspective where you there's a thing it's sort of like being told to eat your vegetables where there's something that you're told you should do this and as a kid you think you know, this is stupid. I don't want it. None of my friends are into this or whatever. And then as an adult, you're like, I thank God I got that, you know, like, yeah, it's yeah. no, so valuable to me now. I know. I know. And I, and I kind of regret not pursuing it further, uh, certainly on the sitar, uh, cause I could make a killing mm-hmm. as a session musician now, <laughs> <laughs> but as a teenager, I, I then discovered film, you know, film was my big escape and my earliest memories of film were I was actually going to I was on holiday on the Isle of Wight it was a rainy Saturday afternoon and I was five years old and there was and my it was pouring with rain and so we my parents piled me into a into a cinema and we watched the aristocrats and again mm-hmm. you know those those Disney musicals and uh, that, that sort of seven brides were seven sisters and, and brothers yep. and, and and all that, that all those um uh, all those movies those those animations you know bed knobs and broomsticks and uh, and mary poppins and and so on they were they formed a huge part of my really young childhood and then developing into um uh, going to the local library there was a library which they mm. had a soundtrack department and you could go in and rent vinyl LPs, soundtracks. So I would, once every two weeks, I would go to my local library and, and hire out, um, uh, you know, <laughs> rent, rent LPs like The Sea of Love, uh, you know, with the film with Al Pacino and and John Barry and and the first album that my parents ever bought for our for our new record player was uh, Ennio Morricone's The Good, The Bad and The Ugly. So that introduced me to so many different types of, you know, the inventiveness and the, you know, I just thought, what is this amazing sound? 
that I'm hearing. I don't know the movies, but I, I certainly picked up on the sounds. And then, uh, and I, I used to noodle all the time, you know, as I was learning instruments, I would never learn the pieces that were given to me for the lesson. <laughs> I would just play and make up my own tunes. And that I just That's so funny. That's so, we're so similar in that way. That was exactly the way I started too. Just like I was like a bad student, basically, yeah, uh, yeah. Who, who refused to learn what I was being taught because it was more interesting to start generating variations yeah. and, uh, you know, give it its own spin. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and if I watched TV and then growing up through the age of the golden age of well, it was there's always a golden age, isn't there? For me, the golden age was, you know, in, in the 80s. Growing up, listening to theme TV theme tunes was such a big mm. thing in those days. You know, like the A Team, Mike Post era. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mike Post, you know, Knight Rider and, and the A Team, and all those great, great melodies and great show. You know, t- tunes that you know, I, I'd, I'd be in the kitchen and my favorite show would come on. We have children's TV. Have, there was a golden age of children's TV in in the UK where we had shows like Grange Hill and. Blue Peter and Rhubarb and Custard and all these these kids TV <laughs> shows, which they were just fantastic uh, theme tunes. So that perked up my I, my mind to what is this? You know, it's this, it's really resonating with me. And then growing up with film as a teenager, and then I think the the first films that really. So I got to university. I did a degree in mathematics because I couldn't. I wasn't allowed huh. to various rules and British educational system rules. I couldn't go and study music. They wouldn't allow me to, even though. So, so music was always a part of my life in a big way, but I, I was under various pressures to go. Well, this, is the, this was like the official rule. Like this wasn't your parents. You're saying this was like an academically enforced Yes. Rule? Yeah. So I, I didn't. Ha- I didn't take the right subjects at school to go and do an A level in music, uh, and then go and do a. Ah, I see. I see. So, so it's one of those where you would have had to make different decisions at an earlier juncture in life, basically. Yeah. Even though I wanted to, we didn't have those options in 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 school as a teenager. So so I ended up. Isn't that so fascinating to put that burden on kids to to make these these decisions? I think, uh, yeah, I think it, that's one of the yeah. That's one of the huge. Uh, problems, the pressures on on kids' education these days of forcing you to make a decision, a life changing decision at the age of fifteen or fourteen or fifteen, where you don't know what you want to do at that age. I mean, not everyone does. So, um, yeah, I mean, no, yeah, the majority don't. I mean, what? even 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 uh, like there's so many there's so many examples of people that uh, they they don't know what they want uh, and like, like you, you disadvantage those that are that 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 sort of know what they want, and those that just need to cross paths with the thing. They need to try a bunch of stuff, and then somewhere at an unpredictable moment, they'll land on that thing that lights the fire. Uh, you, you kind of it's weird how it seems to disadvantage hmm. both groups. Uh, it's an odd, it's an odd policy to to. I, I get, you know, I, I get having rigorous standards and and all that. I'm I'm certainly supportive of that. Uh, but the idea that you literally closed a door and mathematics of all things, uh, it was, a was, is quite, I mean, obviously there's those arguments that it's not, it's not so far a field of the arts as some might suggest. And I'm, I'm definitely sympathetic to that idea. Um, but still 
you know, you've everything about your story up to this point has been musical theater and Barbara Streisand and film and Ennio Morricone and all that. And, and mm. of all the options you had, how did you choose math? Well, I mean, it's something that I, I was under pressure to, you know, a lot of peer pressure and parental pressure. You can't, you know, what is music? You know, I, I didn't even know that being a composer was something that I could make a career out of. It wasn't an option. It wasn't on my radar. It was just, mu- I wanted to be a, a, a pop singer. I wanted to be, I was really into technology. So I loved, um, uh, you know, I, I had this little portable cassette Walkman, Sony Walkman, um, and mm. I used to go around recording sound effects and, and just recording the environment around me. And I used to go on holiday and, and I'd always have a pair of headphones and a microphone and be recording stuff I'd, and, and just cataloging it. And then and then making my own mixtapes <laughs> and recording the top 40 and listening to film scores. And, and then I heard Peter Gabriel, uh, his score mm. for The Last Temptation of Christ. And that blew my mind at the time. And then I discovered Daniel Lenoir and... You know, he was he and Brian Eno had this really interesting working relationship where Brian Eno is incredibly cerebral and and Daniel Lenoir is very much very earthy and the uh, he was producing I mean between the two of them or on his own I think he produced U two and Emmy Lou Harris and the Neville Brothers and Bob Dylan and an an incredible array of mus- of artists at that time and so my my ears and eyes opened up to the world of record producing so i thought i want to be a record producer i want to be a music engineer so so that's one of the reasons well i took maths because i was good at math uh it just happened to be right. something that i enjoyed and i and i love the the beauty of numbers you know as uh, and and sure. i was interested in programming so i learned pascal and cobol and, and fortran 77 and basic and <laughs> yeah wow <laughs> so, so, so i got into programming and uh, and coding and um and then i and and i discovered video games as a teenager as well you know i had an amstrad pc and i would you know play little video games and I, well, the first games console i had was i couldn't afford it actually my best friend was quite well off and she had the uh, Atari console. Mm. Uh, she got given an Atari console. And so I played, I used to go around to her house and play Space Invaders. And uh, <laughs> and uh, and so that was my introduction to video games and 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 then getting into programming as well. And so, so when I left, um, when I actually went into the industry, you know, um, as a, as a, you know, in my early twenties, I would, um, I actually wanted to create, cause I worked as, I got work as a sound designer, uh, and I, I went into right. sound design because of my love of technology. So I, I was doing dialogue editing, Foley editing. I was a Foley artist in Germany working on American imported TV shows like Columbo and, uh, and, um, Ironside. I don't know if you remember Ironside, the man in the wheel, the detective in the wheelchair, and I had mm-hmm. this creaky, this leather suitcase with a creaky handle. That um, so every time he would wheel his squeaky wheel wheelchair, I would wheel this this uh, this suitcase, you know, and watch it on screen. And so that was so that was my early days of you know synchronization and sync, and uh, so that was fun. Mm. So I. Um, it's funny how that, that that really shows where 
you're it's interesting all these different threads that uh you know we'll 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 talk about your collaborations with Sam in a minute but but the it is interesting how so much of what you're saying does feel like you despite your truly prolific career and and wonderful successes so far in film and TV and and especially um you, you know just the way in which you have taken the the art of documentary scoring so seriously and and really done such wonderful scores very cinematic and kind of narratively insightful work and not just the kind of classic wa- wallpaper just mm-hmm. give it a bed while the talking heads go you've really you've really kind of sidestepped the the trappings of that genre and, and done such amazing work and yet i say all that as as like despite all of that um this confluence of technology, production, and also the raw kind of just musicality and musicianship does seem to have put you on a kind of inevitable collision course with games. Because I think one of the fundamental things that composers new to games struggle with is an understanding of systems. Uh, the idea that that there's a logic that's driving this music. It's not just it starts here and it ends here in the way that a concert piece or uh, obviously a music to linear footage works. But the idea that, that um, even if it's a linear piece that's being triggered under some set of conditions where the music itself is fundamentally linear, but we need X, Y, and Z variable to all trigger before this piece is sort of eligible to be brought to the fore Mm -hmm. for the player, even just understanding a system as, as rudimentary as that, Never mind real-time dynamic mixing or branching pathways or whatever the case mm-hmm. uh, is a thing that is kind of mystifying, I think, for a lot of composers n- new to games. they I, I often see a kind of kicking and screaming, like, can't I basically just write film music and let them, let the game people figure mm-hmm. out how to do it? Um, and I, I, I hadn't really, part of why I was excited for this conversation is despite our prior chats and opportunities at hanging out and Comic-Con and all those other things that we've done, I I, uh, I hadn't realized that your background would give you such a great insight into system. When you said the beauty of numbers, I mean, what is video game design if not literally that sentence? Mm, yeah, uh, yeah. And and that's that's such a great, I, I really didn't appreciate that about your background. I didn't know that. Yeah, no, I mean, I, and I, you know, I very much throughout everything, the way I approach music, composition, um, you know, there's chaos and order. And I love the, I love the structure and the order. You know, I have to create a very ordered framework in which I work for on every level, from the order of my desktop to the, my surroundings to the way I organize organize myself with spreadsheets and and so on that that kind of organization down to musical organization. Um, mm-hmm. And I like that discipline because then you have that structure and you, and you have that framework and, and the way that you're structuring your down to the pieces of music, you know, within the game. Um, and then you allow for that chaos to happen, that, that, right. that creativity. And I think there's a, there's a place for, for both. And that's what I enjoy as opposed to just writing music for the hell of it. I need some kind of framework. I need a brief, but also within that I need um, it, it, you know, that that framework that games music allows you is is such a superior intellectually superior sort of uh, sort of uh, sort of way to compose in terms of as opposed to just uh, writing the you know exploring and expressing yourself creatively 
to the narrative of a, a linear uh, composition. You know, for film and TV, it's it's all about the storytelling and and the uh, and just creating and being creatively expressive. Whereas with games, there's so much more uh, to it that I think that can throw composers. And I think even if you just want to, even if you disregard the technical constraints, you still need to understand it to be able to, totally, you know, to be totally immersed in how to effectively um, tell the story in a non-linear way through music. It's it's so much more challenging, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's let's kind of jump jump into that then, because obviously I would love to plumb the depths of your film and TV uh, background, but this being the Game Maker's Notebook, I will I will resist the temptation uh, and um, I will plug my own YouTube video in which you give some great answers and insights into into that on the series that we did earlier this year. Anyway, you, you told many great stories, not least of which was the documentary musical, which is a thing I still think about uh, all the time and just the crazy, the crazy conditions under which uh, you had to do that. So dear listener, you are encouraged to go seek out that conversation. Um, the uh, But so I first came across your work uh, uh, in games, obviously from Telling Lies, uh, your collaboration with Sam. Mm-hmm. I, that Was that in fact your first game or is there something before that that, I'm, uh, that I just somehow am unaware of? Well, in, a, in many ways, it's my first game because I worked, I started off in games about you know, over 20 years ago. And and it was such a different industry then. But I started off doing sound effects. I did it for a couple of years. I worked for a major games publisher uh, called Empire Interactive in the UK. And they had six or seven developers underneath them making games for them uh, in many different genres, um, you know, like uh, flight simulators and uh, uh, play... I, did the music and sound effects for for Monopoly, World Cup Monopoly, and uh, and <laughs> and uh, Sheep, which was I think PlayStation One, I think going back. But then, but then the my career digressed and I moved into film and TV because the publisher then sold up, the developers went out of business. So my my career in games uh. came to a natural end, a, a sort of a natural end that didn't progress further. So then coming back. 20 years later to telling lies, um, I got approached by Sam totally out of the blue. Um, and I think because of my experience of having then scored linear and film and TV, um, he sort of opened up. I don't know why he contacted me. Uh, there's something. Uh, yeah, that- so you don't know he didn't like see something of yours on TV think- or watch a film you'd scored yeah, or something. I, yeah. I think he heard something of mine. Uh, I think it was a, a documentary score that I wrote uh, about a serial killer and um, uh, sweet, ah. uh, sort of noir serial killer, The Confessions of Thomas Quick. And he heard something in that that he really liked and thought. Um, he's definitely a cinephile. Like he's, de- I mean, you certainly see that with immortality, but even, even just when I first, in the wake of her story coming out, I, I was, th- I, I was so blown away by that game and uh, sought him out. Just, I thought, I just want to be friends with, someone this talented like this is just this is just a cool interesting guy and uh one thing that impressed me was that he seemed to really um w- while he lived and breathed games he had a real deep knowledge and appreciation for cinema as an art i mean it was it was beyond you know i watched star wars as a kid i mean it was it was like this guy really seems to know the body of work of film so it, it doesn't i guess surprise me that he would have a kind of a 
above average spidey sense in picking up something, you know, and especially in a documentary, typically uh, this is just not a normal kind of entry point, but it, it makes perfect sense both for you given the, like I said before, you, the passion with which you have scored documentaries and his passion for paying attention, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, that makes total sense. I should have guessed. Yeah, no, I mean, he's, I mean, I, I went to the National Film and Television School and studied sound for film after my degree in math. So I am a cinephile as well. And I, you know, I, 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 I love film more than anything, actually. If music is kind of a hangover uh, sideline oh, to, right. my, to my actual love of film. And, um, and so we, that's how our conversation started, really. And I think he didn't want a composer that was used to scoring games with that experience. He wanted someone with the, um, the, the aesthetic and the, and the sort of the, the experience of scoring linear and, and, and film and TV. So, so we would have, um, Sam likes, I mean, I'm a very visually inspired composer. I like to have visuals in front of me. They speak, it speaks volumes to me. And with games, I mean, even as a traditional uh, way of scoring games, you're given uh, examples of um, storyboards or, you know, images of characters or examples right. of, of gameplay, um, or, or, you know, early revisions, early drafts of, and, you, and you're working with the narrative designers. I mean, I'm scoring a game at the moment, uh, which is a much more traditional uh, approach to scoring games. And working with Sam is so innovative and different. It's quite scary <laughs> because we are finding and forming our own methodology and ways of how are we going to create the music for this? I mean, we've got uh, with Immortality, you know, we've got eight to 10 hours worth of footage. Um, so I, and, and of course it's an interactive film trilogy. So it's about three films. I couldn't possibly score three movies. And the well, no, it wouldn't even make sense. I mean, at wor- best case scenario is it would read within the kind of diagesis. It's a weird to refer to it as diegetic, but it, it's oddly applicable in this case to say the, the diegetically within the clips, even though. I as a player exist outside the clips. I'm not in the I'm not I'm not in it the way an audience member is in the movie as it were where I'm very like knowingly outside of it and, and you know it's interesting in immortality how that relationship between you and the content is that's a that's been an evolutionary thing with his with his games but obviously her story like one of the things that blew me away about just the art of narrative in her story was the way that uh you didn't even know for half the game who, quote, you are. You don't know why you're looking at these clips. You're just kind of intrinsically motivated because it's interesting. But the narrative of kind of what's the point of all this hasn't even been revealed yet. And similarly, uh, in Telling Lies, I really loved that game. I really loved – I think the thing that I loved the most about Telling Lies, funny enough, I've always been fascinated by all the little things that performers, that actors do mm-hmm. that are not the big like Al Pacino speech moments, but the little moments in between. I've always, I'm sure it's similar with you where when you're yeah. scoring a film and there's like two characters talking, it's the one who's listening. I invariably find myself kind of obsessing over. Yeah. And I loved in telling lies when you would land on a clip that's like eight minutes of which six minutes is the person listening to whoever's talking. Yes. So it's just footage of watching someone react without without knowing what is being said to them. I remember yeah. thinking that was one of the most amazing ways to try and tell a story where yeah. you go, what did that person just say? You know, where there's a minute of 
kind of pensive look and then, uh, mm, where you just go, oh, something happened. And, and it, it's like, it just, it engages with a form of narrative. He, he's such an innovative storyteller. But I remember at the time wondering, how on earth do you even begin to conceptualize music for a thing like this? Because you can't, you can't get, you're not scoring what you're looking at. You're, it's like, you're trying to score. Okay. Well, actually you tell me if this is correct. Mm-hmm. It feels like you're trying to score a perception of the intention of the player. It's like, what is the player looking for? Or what are they, what are they projecting? Or how, what are they on the hunt for from this footage? And how do we sort of support that experience? It feels like it's almost, it's almost there as a gateway between the footage uh, and the player's experience navigating the footage. That's kind of how it comes across to me. But I'm curious how you even begin in the case of either of, of the that's two very, games with Sam, that's, how you- very, that's very complicated. That's above my head, above my station. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what, what we did was we distilled, okay, we thought, I mean, with, with Telling Lies, we've got four main characters. And so I wrote a theme for each character, basically. Mm-hmm. Immortality is different in that we have one character, Marissa Marcel. Uh, right. I mean, with Telling Lies, we had three themes. We had control, trust, and intimacy. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think the best analogy I can make is imagine, you know, when when someone dies, you have a, a hundred, you have their obituary is summed up, you know, their life is summed up in 150 words and posted as, as an obituary in a newspaper, local paper. And, and, how, and so with immortality, for example, or even Telling Lies, I'm having to sum up this concept in one single musical theme, which is an overarching concept. It's so big. It's, you know, it's incredibly, with immortality, it's very philosophical and life-encompassing. So how do I achieve that in one seven-minute piece of music? So that, that, was the, that was one of the big challenges with immortality. You know, you've got three films and we tried initially. We had we'd have long discussions, and that's what I love about Sam. He's so he's one of the brightest human beings I've ever come across. Uh, you know, let alone worked with. Oh, yeah. He's just he knows everything about everything, and but I mean has an opinion <laughs> about everything. But he's so his insight into the human condition is just fantastic, and it's very mm. inspiring for me just listening to someone talking. You know, the best directors I've worked with are the ones that. Just I listen to and I soak up the vibe of what they're trying to explain. What is the essence of this game? What is the essence of what what we're trying to convey? And then by listening to them, I'm already hearing music or I'm already hearing a sound palette or, you know, that that I find very inspiring. Sam, I didn't actually get any visuals. I I got a huge script that I must admit I read half of and then and then I put it down And then I mean, uh, for eight hours of footage, it must have been like hundreds of pages, hundreds of pages. And I so in the end, I just said, okay, we would share Spotify playlists, we would share music, we would share movies. And it's interesting, because I kind of knew that I'd hit the nail on the head sometimes when I'd Sam would describe something to me. And then I'd go off on a tangent and say, have you seen the eyes of Laura Mars with Faye Dunaway? And he said, that's exactly what I'm talking about, you know, and if they, we were, we would be singing from the same hymn sheet. And that was really, mm-hmm. you know, uh, just like, for example, one of the movies. So I wrote three themes. 
for immortality. And each theme is about, it's not about the movies, it's about the the character Marissa's journey and and how she grapples with mortality. So we're looking at these three abstract philosophical themes. One is um, life. Okay, it was it was, well actually it was on the soundtrack. It's called Life, but it was it's about living in the moment. It's about mm. so the film is this 1970s New uh, New York City set thriller and. Right. Um, and I was, and I'd have these conversations with Sam, and and he would say, okay, uh, it's called Minsky. It's a 1970s thriller. It's about the death of a famous artist, and it's about living in the moment. It's about engaging in the pleasures, physical pleasures of life, and capturing that in a bottle. And it's very sensual. It's and Sam would come up with these analogies uh, that instantly gave me this visual image. He said, imagine. Um, Jesus living physically amongst us and hanging out with real folk drinking wine. Okay. And so I thought, yeah, okay, I can see that. I can see that at the Last Supper, you know, him having a good old jolly with his mates and uh, and getting drunk and being hedonistic. And then, um, and the music had to have this sense of abandonment where we revel in the beauty and we get wrapped up in in hedonistic activities. And then, so that would be the main theme for each uh, mm. film. And then we'd throw a twist, just like we did with Telling Lies. We'd have a subverted theme. And the subverted version of the main theme in life is it reflects, you know, you wake up the next morning and you've got a bad hangover. And, right. Yeah. The consequence and, of the hedonism. Consequent, yes. And so it's like the, the subverted version then would be hollowed out and slightly dark and um and it's like yeah so so what so what feels free and natural feels contrived and artificial in the subverted version and so on that before we because I, I this is phenomenal and i love hearing this and i love i don't i don't want to shortchange your comparable description of the the other two sort of buckets of material that, that you had to contend with, with the other two films. But just out of just to just to jump on this specifically, so you've got these two kind of thematic uh, sort of it's kind of like two sides of the same coin. You know, it's sort of the it's sort of the action and the reaction in a sense. Um uh and or the the action and the consequence. Um and how in practice did you because it doesn't come across like it's basically just here's piece number one and here's piece number two when you play the game. How did you then say, okay, what do we do with these? Like from a from a because I I've, I haven't uh, played every last minute of the game. One of the things I find so fascinating about his games is how you you don't have to kind of platinum them as it were to really kind of grasp them, which I think is a fascinating. Develop like design discussion in its own right, um, and so. But the result is, I, I haven't been able to kind of see all the different ways in which the music might interact interact with the different footage. So, kind of, what is that interaction? How, how are you breaking that down? And for example, that like take just the main theme, the, the the sort of good the good version, as it were, the 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 Jesus enjoying 1970s hedonism, the the mm -hmm. consequence free version. Are you making a bunch of variations on that? Are you breaking it down? Is it how is it actually literally being deployed 
such that player does X and that's how I'll hear that. Well, I didn't, um, I mean, you know, I, I'm one of those composers. In this instance, I was the composer that didn't have to worry about the implementation so much. <laughs> but, well, but even in terms of just what you what you were expected to deliver, because uh, well, I mean, obviously I want to I want to talk also. Uh, don't help me remember to that end. I do want to get into your collaboration with Rob Ames and and all of that as well, because that's endlessly fascinating to me. Um, as part of this process, but I, but I'm, but yeah, just in terms of like, is it just the one piece of music, uh, or, or did you have to sort of provide a bunch of variations or was it deeply stemmed, that kind of thing? Yeah. So yes, I mean, there were, it was modular, you know, there are chunks and segments, uh, however, whatever way you want to describe it, but I had, so we, we, we distilled it down to, we tried to make something that was very, um, you know, potentially huge and distilled it down to its core fundamental requirements uh. in that I wrote a theme for each movie had a theme. We didn't want to um, make a nod to film genres because of the nonlinear aspect of the playing. You're dipping in and out of any of the three movies at any particular time from scene to scene. So you could be going backwards and forwards decades, you know, from 1968 to the 70s to the early 90s. So it didn't make right. sense to do that. So I came up with the idea of this. Um, Did you? Were you tempted? Just real sorry to interrupt you, but that was one of the things I immediately thought of, uh, that you, you make a very clear declaration that you are not, fictionalizing like you're not transporting yourself to the 70s and being the composer of those films the film is very clearly not trying to do that and i was curious if you ever contemplated that or if you tried it yes yeah we did i would think it would be very tempting yeah no i mean i i mean as as a as a film buff you know as a cinephile i it's something particularly with the 70s set uh noir uh, crime thrillers i was really interested i mean i was very inspired by basic instincts and jerry goldsmith and and body dub brian de palmer's body double and uh and then going body heat the john barry uh there's a sensuality uh you say that austin because there's a little essence of that i'm a little essence of um uh, Body Heat, and also what's the film with uh, Sharon Stone and Sylvester Stallone that John Barry scored? It's another uh, modern sort of old uh, noir crime classic. Uh, uh, it's on the tip of my tongue. I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, it'll. I'll, I'll remember it by the end of this conversation. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I have to. I lose my mind. That's why I keep the IMDb app on my phone. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there is an essence of that John Barry-esque use of melody in um, in life. Um, and um, mm-hmm. in the Eyes of Laura Mars, I mean, I love it, of course, because the song in Eyes of Laura Mars was sung by Barbara Streisand. So I was introduced, and mm-hmm. I'm a big fan of Faye Dunaway. So there's all, there are all these, these sort of spider web of connections through film history. Um, but um, so I would write one seven-minute piece of music um, and mm. I would I would say four chunks of it uh, are the main theme, and then I would write different chunks which would be the subverted theme, the sort of the, the specialist. Well, yeah, yeah, the specialist. I knew it began with the letter S. That's right. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so it was going to drive me crazy. Sorry, but yes, but okay, continue. Great, great, great score, by the way. So, so there are so so musically, I wanted. We did discuss the idea of of playing homage to these movies, you know, um, that inspired both of us so very much. And we would 
share Spotify playlists of music that inspired us. And um, but we decided not to do that in the end for practical logistical reasons, and um, um, and to create this overarching feel, you know, with slightly extended techniques with strings, orchestral, organic, mm. acoustic, raw, um, and and make and and Sam and myself, we always want to veer away from musical convention. So one of the other themes mm-hmm. is, um, is religion, and uh, for this uh, gothic novel called the monk uh the 1968 film ambrosia one of the one of the other films in the game and what do you think of when you think of religion musically choirs angelic choirs and i thought no please don't let me go i don't want to go yeah. down the route. but actually, organ corrals and yeah but we did i mean i did integrate voice uh and you know the the, uh, the choir into that piece, but because it had to have this slightly fantastical uh, sprinkling of magic within the theme, uh, with, with what it represented within the within the game within that particular film. So so I'd I'd use you know uh, little touches of saxophone for the noir New York seventies thriller. Um, you know, I've always looked for an excuse to use the sax and I've never had that opportunity. And so narratively, everything sort of connects loosely. Um, I'm just picking up the I'm trying to imbue the essence, uh, the spirit of each of the movies without making a nod to each film genre in such an explicit way. Um, so that with the harmonic progression, the harmonic sequences, sometimes you go, there's something slightly old-fashioned about this you know that maybe mm-hmm. inspired by um, all the president's men with robert redford or network with faye dunaway you know those that kind of the scores that i would listen to the conversation with ford cop by ford coppola you know those kinds oh, yeah shire yeah oh i love i'm you know a huge fan of those there are certain themes through cinematic history in scores that have haunted me my whole life like david shire's piano in in the conversation mm-hmm. and and some and somehow uh you know, john barry you know and, and and you know and so on so they found themselves they imbued themselves in the dna of the fabric of some of the harmonic sequences, not consciously, I would never do it consciously, but always, always subconsciously, they'd find a way out. And then another touchstone for um, uh, Sam and myself was David Lynch. He's all, and and that happened in Telling Lies, and uh, he's a kind of a running narrative theme through the game, the both the games that we've worked on, you know, and. That duality, and that you get that with the the main theme and the subverted theme, but also the supernatural theme. And I think that was the mm. biggest musical challenge was um, to create these uh, a th- the main theme, and then when the player is, um, you know, depending on the tagging and the metadata and how you how they tagged each scene in terms of um, dramatic intensity. Uh, you know you're onto something when you start hearing the music warping and contorting, and uh, you're going into the something that is very evocative of horror and twisted and demented. So I would I had to write a supernatural theme alongside the main theme. The two had to be connected together, and that was one of the biggest practical challenges, uh, technical challenges of how would I write 
uh, supernatural theme that was connected to the original main theme where the listener could somehow hear a musical connection um but but for them not but for them to be very different it's a bit like um you know the the lynchian thing of if you remember the opening of blue velvet and uh-huh. the film opens up with uh, the front yard of an Ameri- small town America with the white picket fence, the green grass, a beautiful home, children playing, dogs running around with the water sprinkler, and and your and that's the main theme. And then you dig beneath the surface uh, in the game, and and you dig beneath the surface in the opening scene of of Blue Velvet, and you go into the dark soil and the earth below the grass and it's filled with nastiness and and insects and bugs and and that's kind of the supernatural theme the like if you've watched stranger things you've got the upside uh, the upside yeah. Yeah? yeah so you've got so you have the main theme playing and you have the supernatural and at any time as the player you might be you might switch instantly into the supernatural theme and so Sam wanted it to sound, um, I thought about writing a completely fresh piece of music for the supernatural, but that just wasn't going to work. So I recorded with the orchestra, recorded the main theme and the sub- subverted themes, and then I took the, took the recordings and the stems and started messing around with them in the computer and with plugins and uh, and really slowing things down. And that's where my maths comes in because I <laughs> a very, very rigid structure. I'm going to slow everything down by 200% and then start taking out bars of music, an equal number of bars, and then slowing it down again, um, Not never randomly, but sort of bringing it down by 400%. So that right. taking out bars. So when I put put it back together again with lots of effects and reverbs and delays and crossfades, it would still match one to one with the original main theme. And sure, that, yeah. Uh, and so if you listen carefully, you can hear fragments of of the main theme, but really slowed down and pitched down and twisted. So I would stretch things and pitch them down uh, and and then compress them back together again so that they were still musically connected to the main theme. That was that was an interesting challenge. Yeah, I, it's so interesting. And, I, you know, one of the things that also this poses as an interesting just philosophical challenge for a composer is – Something that's consistent in Sam's games across all three of them, all three of the FMV games, mm. um, is he uses the literal art of filmmaking to make things that are, in a way, decidedly uncinematic. Uh, and you know, the, the obviously this almost voyeuristic surveillance footage, essentially, like not surveillance, but like. Tr- you know, documenting, it's like a, it's like a dash cam almost in her story of just this, you know, tripod mounted police interview camera. And then in telling lies, the idea that it's all essentially like Skype, you know, selfie cams mm-hmm. on laptops or phones or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, something. So you're using actors on sets and props and costumes, but it's, it's sort of anti-cinematic. And what I thought was so interesting about this one is I remember he and I had lunch when he came to LA. I think he was shooting. Uh, and so it was like the game was, this was years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it was far from done. He um, was describing it to me and I was having the damnedest of a time picturing 
how this was going to work because it was just so he was like, you know, then we zoom in and the player clicks this. And I just remember going, yeah, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about, but uh, <laughs> but I'm sure it'll be very interesting because it always is. But the thing that I found so fascinating was this time it was, OK, we are going to make actual films. This is no longer selfie style. But then what I love is when I finally go and play the game, he he pulls back from that and we see all those moments you know, starts with them slating the shot and calling the take. And you realize it's still this kind of almost anti-cinematic thing where now you're getting a simultaneous insight into the filmmaking process. So you're, you're a viewer of the, of the filmmaking. You're not a viewer of the film, which is first off, that's just a fascinating way to tell a story where you're witnessing the actor and the character and that boundary disappearing between them and the idea of watching someone try to become their character. And then also, of course, his ability to add commentary on the filmmaking process and particularly with regard to actresses. And there's all kinds of like additional stuff that that lets you tackle as a storyteller, but as a composer to go, okay, so wait a minute. If I fully embrace how cinematic this is now, I'm, 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 I'm almost at odds with the kind of verite, uh, voyeurism into filmmaking. And and, and I, I found that going, this is one of those challenges where there is no obvious answer. You just have to make a choice. You just have to decide this is what we're going to do for better or worse, because there, it doesn't seem like there could possibly be a definitive approach to how do you score, um, uh, like, a, how do you score a game that is on some level about filmmaking. (laughs) Uh, You know what I mean? It's such a fascinating challenge. I never really saw anything like this before. Well, I mean, it's, it's a real insight into the human condition, isn't it? Because I mean, with telling lies, um, Sam was really interested with using mirrors and perspective. And with here, he's kind of using a mirror onto the world of filmmaking through the lens of, the behind the scenes. Um, and mm. so you've got a story within a story, uh, within a story. Right. And it's so multi-layered that, um, uh, yeah, I mean, it just, it's just mind blowing. <laughs> and so I, I didn't, I didn't go there in that respect. Um, I mean, I find it intriguing, but, but in the, in the same way, musically, we have, a layer within a layer you know you've you've got the you've got the external representation of each of those films and then you've got what's really going in on inside marissa and her existence and her personality and her personal journey represented by the subverted theme and then obviously you've got the um other manifestation of it as the supernatural theme. So you have your, I'm kind of mirroring what's going on in the game on one level, but the way it's implemented is always so um, fresh. I didn't, I had no idea. I didn't see any of the filming. In fact, Sam wanted the music done before, before they filmed. Um, And with telling lies in particular, um, I wrote the music beforehand and then he would play the characters, he'd play the actors, their theme uh, on set. So they, so he would listen to the music on set and that would, inf- and, and with this as well, the music informed the writing. Uh, you know, be inspired, give me 
visual ideas, explain scenes to me that would then inspire me. So that's what I find really, um, I, I think that with that process, hopefully the, the music gets imbued in the DNA of the, of the storytelling and the, and the visual aesthetic of the, of the film. And, and so what I love about this, the cinematography is incredible. You know, and you're using you're using different aspect ratios. You're using different frame rates. You're using the audio quality. Yeah, different different cameras, even it felt like different cameras. Yes, to you know, for each of the movies, and so with the music, with the with the production quality of the music, I worked with the Budapest Arts Orchestra in this instance. And on Telling Lies, I worked with the LCO, and um, for me, the the sound the the texture of and the sonic quality of the music and the playing the way the instruments the musicians play their instruments was as important to me as the actual notes that they were playing as well um, to mirror that visual aesthetic of you know the the different layers and lenses um, metaphor right. metaphorical and visual lenses that Sam was using um, for the various films. Yeah, that was definitely one of the things I wanted to ask as well, because um, Rob Ames and the London Contemporary Orchestra is a rather noteworthy ensemble and and, and obviously very different from, you know, if, like if you're going to London and you do a pickup orchestra is one thing, you can get absolutely phenomenal session musicians. Um, and then, of course, there's the sitting orchestras, the sort of traditional sitting orchestras like the Royal Phil, the London Chamber Orchestra, the Symphony of London, the London Symphony. Yes. Um, the Contemporary Orchestra is a, obviously a bit of an outlier because their whole MO is let's try to kind of upset the apple cart a little bit and find new ways of expression. And I think I've never I've never collaborated with them. I, I worked with Rob uh, uh, recently at this proms concert, which was our mm -hmm. first time kind of directly collaborating, but I've, I've certainly been an admirer of his from afar, not least of which from your collaboration. Mm -hmm. And I found it interesting because it sort of demands a, 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 an, a like an atypical surrender of the composer's ego to invite him and the orchestra into the process, you know, to kind of really help find the sound in a way that is, that is not our normal way of working. I think you and I are both similar in that when it comes to orchestration, we tend to be pretty exacting. And, and I, I think we're also very similar, different results, but very similar way of thinking mm -hmm. of inviting chaos into an otherwise orderly process. Like I'll never mm -hmm. forget the story you told of uh, collaborating with the um, musician by, by giving sort of hand signals in real time and yeah. letting them essentially pick the notes within a mm -hmm. finite set and mm -hmm. not pre-prescribing rhythm, pitch or yes. anything really. It's, it's yeah. found in the moment, but yet you've also constructed it in a way to kind of have guardrails of your making. It, it's sort of like a, it's like authoring an AI where it will do things of its own accord once you've set it loose, but you've also set the outer parameters in which it can operate. I think similarly in collaborating with musicians, um, and, and I think you, you, you really um, succeed gloriously in, in the way that you do this as well. It's, it's fascinating because it really does come through. You can feel the spontaneity that that invites, but I'm curious and especially in the context of a game, I mean, Sam is probably just very atypical, but so much has to be so planned that the world of mock-ups and all that become quite essential. So how do you even reconcile the need for this sort of spontaneity, knowing that the final product is going to have a certain amount of indeterminacy that you simply can't 
predict, even with a, something that's uh, as theoretically prescriptive as a traditional orchestra. I, actually, I don't know if this orchestra in Budapest was it, it, comparable to the LCO in this way or not, but I, I'm kind of asking a multitude of questions and a blurry smorgasbord here. Mm. Hopefully it makes sense what mm. I'm, what I'm driving at. It's just sort of essentially how you manage the process of your collaborators' expectations via mock-ups and things, knowing that your process invites spontaneity even at the exact moment of recording. Yeah, I know. I think trust um, to a certain degree, there's a certain amount of trust. Inevitably. Certain collaborators that, that do trust you um, because they know it's going to, in the end, it's always going to work out and the results are going to be, you know, successful, hopefully. But I think <laughs> it's it's about creating that framework. So like with Telling Lies, for example, and, um, and the LCO, I would create, I would do my mock-ups and then get them approved and signed off and then um, we would, and then when it came to the recording stage, we would record exactly what I had written, the notes on the page, and then so that I at least I knew there was a fail-safe backup. Um, and right. and yeah, that makes total sense. Yeah, but then to create variety, to create more variations out of the same out of the same theme, we then we then push it to go. Okay, let's do fifty percent semi-improv on this. And so right. I extended articulation. So I would build time into the recording process to allow for the improvised um, uh, versions to, 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 to play around um, and have time to play around in the recording sessions. So sometimes we wouldn't know quite what we were going to end up with. And, uh, and having a large ensemble there or, you know, in the studio was uh, quite you know nerve wracking, uh, but also very exciting. And so with Hugh Hugh Brunt, uh, who I worked with on um, Telling Lies, I worked with Rob on, an, on a couple of other projects, but with Hugh on Telling Lies, um, we would um, do semi improvisations and and again say, okay, let's try yeah, let's try changing the notes. You know, let's try um, some different extended techniques. Let's try some circular scrubbing and you know wonderful things like that and um and we we formed our own language you know and and that's what the lco do so well they they've they've developed their own uh language to work with to explain to the musicians let's try this technique let's try that technique and sometimes we'd push it too far and it just it just wasn't working um, within the context of what I knew would work well within the game. But we didn't know that until we actually tried it. So so we would push things to the limit and then we'd go full improv, which would be way off. You know, we'd have our, we'd have our uh, time signature, we'd have our basic structure, but then we'd go full improv where sometimes things just wouldn't, would be way off the mark. But that then gave me lots of stems to play with. So I would then come back to the studio with a whole bunch of material where I could mix and match semi-improvised material with the the versions that I had written, uh, which were note accurate. And so right. I could change uh, different degrees of, you know, from a 0% to 100%, 0% of, of no improv to 100% of improv. I could sort of mix and match stems and layers according to, you know, what we'd done and, and, you know, just experimenting with stuff. So that was a lot of fun, you know, and, but I think, um, yeah, 
I mean, and that's what's so exciting about working with musicians who are open and free thinking. Um, it's like, and up to the task musically. I mean, that's not a diff, that's not an easy thing you're describing, mm-hmm. especially on an orchestral level. It's one thing to invite that level of spontaneity from a musician in the safety of you know, we're here together in this room. It's just us. We can do as many takes as needed. Yes. Uh, you know, when you've got 20, 30, 40, 50 colleagues all doing it, it definitely requires an ensemble that's kind of been built to operate that way from yeah. the beginning. And of course, time is money. You know, when you're in the studio at that level, um, you you know, there's a lot at stake. Um, so that's, yeah. I would always play it safe by recording. If as a fail safe backup, I'd always have my original themes to work with. Um, and then, and then we push the boat out and have, and have fun, you know, in building that uh-huh. to experiment. I mean, I love experimenting with soloists in the studio here and I will bring in, as I did, as you described so well, you know, uh, being able to, it's like that, um, experience of working with Daniel Lenoir and, and sort of Brian Eno and his sort of, he's, he's sort of intellectually, uh, he's so, good at allowing that space for improvisation to take place and and conceptualizing and and then being able to communicate that to a musician and making them feel safe and comfortable so that you can go off the wall where there's no right or wrong you know and and we we live uh, you know in our industry generally i find personally that we live in a culture of fear where you're afraid to go out of the box. And uh, and so, which is why so much of what we hear is, you know, you it's conformed and, you know, you're writing music that you expect to hear for a certain genre of music or, or why uh, we go through phases 100%. of film scores that all sound like one another because, and it's, and I never blame the composer. I, I, I blame this sort of hierarchy and structure of, of, filmmaking where everything costs so much there's so much at stake there are so many pressures that audiences don't really understand you know why this is but we know you know that it's a it's a challenging industry um it's a business absolutely it's a business you know um and so so i think we then champion and relish uh those freak outliers of creativity, uh, whether they're composers or filmmakers or artists, that can break the mold and create something that then sets a precedent um, for everyone else to follow for a few years. You know, um, mm-hmm. um, so yeah. So I think it's trust is at the heart of it, and I think trust and communication with uh, your collaborators is so so important because it gives us gives me as a composer that freedom to think I'm not doing you know if if what I like I would write a piece I would write a theme and I'd send it to Sam and he's go yeah I like this this is interesting or I'm not I'm not quite this is not quite right because I this is not what I hear in my head for this this uh, this movie and so I'd develop it and change it and so on and then I'd park it and then six months later I'd come back to the same theme and say to Sam do you know, I know that you signed off on this theme, but I'm not happy with it. Can we have another, <laughs> can I have another bash at it? Because the person that I was six months ago, I am a yeah. different person now. And I think, 
I'm in a different frame of mind. You know, when you when we compose, we're writing based on the time of day and the mood of that we're in on that. Yeah, absolutely. And and then we'll come back six months later and reflect on the work we've done and look back and think. I could have done better. And we don't normally get given that opportunity when we're writing for film and TV, but with games, you know, being on this game for two and a half years, whatever it was, it flew by so quickly. And I was always in a rush, <laughs> but, but I had the, but I had the benefit of hindsight and going, actually, I wrote that theme. I think I can do a better representation of, of religion or of life or of art, you know, of the theme. So, so that was one of the, that's one of the joys I find of, writing music for games is that I mean I know it's not always like that but I just love having that time to experiment and reflect and improve and tweak and experiment um yeah uh, well I think that's one of those where it the more I've gotten to know about you and your process the more you are seemingly such a really natural fit for games because the time scale does allow for more experimentation than the average film where you've got weeks to work on it and, uh, you know, maybe months if you're lucky, typically, um, and games, you know, you could have years to write under mm -hmm. an hour of music, which is just so disproportionately out of whack compared to the typical film analogy. Um, and, um, uh, and uh, uh, but also to your point about the nature of the business, Games are one of the only spots where I think there's a real, there's a, there like, yes, there are plenty that kind of play on the straight and narrow, but there is a, a hunger for the new and the daring. There is a, the market will reward games that are novel and different. I mean, I think over the last few years, of course, there was uh, Sam's games, but there was also games like um, Inside and Limbo or... Um, or uh, this last year, in, or a year ago, rather, Inscription, um, you know, there, there's the games that just fundamentally come onto the scene where you go, I've never really played anything quite like this before. And, and, and there's, you know, the novelty can actually drive something to go viral on Twitter or whatever, because people are saying, this is, this is unique, and that's good. Uh, this actually disrupts. And the funny thing is, I always wonder if we undervalue... Uh, that novelty, like collectively as an industry in film and TV, because I remember when, the, for example, they released the first WandaVision trailer and it was like, this is a Marvel thing, this 1950s like Dick Van Dyke yeah. treatment and everybody went crazy for it. And I go, it's almost as if new and bold and different and unapologetically odd is something people might like. Mm. You know, it's worth taking note executives of the various powers that be, uh, uh, you know, cause that one still really stands apart, uh, uh, uh for, you know, from, from the goings on at the MCU. I mean that, you know, the MCU has been getting more and more adventurous in certain ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I think to its, to its benefit, but, um, um, but, but yeah, the, the, uh, the general temperament of kind of being risk averse is for sure. Um, a challenge that games, mm -hmm has but to a lesser degree i would argue and certainly independent games like sam's are encouraged i mean that that's the only way to really survive i would argue in the marketplace is to be boldly different and, and god knows that his games uh don't have uh, an issue with being bold and different so yeah uh, and, and you're and you're just such a seemingly uh, perfect match for that so uh, well, look, I, I could I could kind of peel back layers uh, on this forever and ever and ever. I know it's getting into your afternoon. 
uh, my late morning here. Um, uh, I can't um, uh, thank you enough for doing this um, uh, and, and and coming on and sharing just endless. Uh, there's so many little insights. I can't wait till this goes goes live. Um, but uh, but yeah. Uh, in the meantime, hopefully there's. Um, uh, you know, like you said, you're working on a new game and I perked up thinking, Ooh, that's exciting. Hopefully that's a thing that comes out this century. Cause sometimes, sometimes it's like, Oh, I'm working on a game and it's a 2029 release or whatever. I know, I know. Uh, I know. But uh, fingers crossed that's a thing sooner than later that uh, yeah. we get no, to, uh, we get to hear and enjoy. A, a couple of games that I've, that I'm working on uh, one much sooner than the other, uh, but uh, they're all, they're very, very different from what Sam has uh, created uh, which is and and for me as uh, I don't do games very often and so for me it's uh, refreshing because I'll hopefully I'll, I'll come at it in my own way uh, and I'll you know it's, if I'm writing something conventional um, hopefully I can approach it in a way that um, is it's it's new to me so hopefully it comes across right. as being sort of fresh and different but we'll see. And and uh, likewise, I can't wait to see what you come up with next, Austin. You know, congratulations, <laughs> congratulations on the uh, on the Grammy nomination. Uh, a long time coming. And um, oh, that's very kind. I'll have you know, I voted for Immortality. I felt it was it was an n- absolute no brainer. I felt it was uh, uh, an injustice to not make the cut. If I'm going to be candid, I, I honestly I felt. I will just air my grievances as, as I'm very touched and honored, but I, I felt yours and um, the gang uh, of like uh, Alexa and the flight and uh, Niels and Yoris on the horizon forbidden West. To me, those two scores, yours and theirs were uh, two of my favorites uh, for 2022. Oh, and uh, I voted for both and was crushingly disappointed that neither, I was like, apparently my taste is very different from everyone else's, uh, <laughs> which is uh, upsetting. But, uh, but, but hey. that's very kind of you. Uh, you were in my head canon. We are, we are, we are, knives out fierce competitors for it. Uh, but you're, it, it, there'll be, the good news with this category is that before long, um, uh, much the same way that you've uh, enjoyed this recent Emmy win. Congratulations to you. you um, uh, the Grammys, I'm sure w- you will be a regular recur. As often as you're doing games, you'll be a recurring presence in this category. I've no doubts. So, well, I uh, hope that we we'll get to hang out. To the next one. I hope we get to hang out and celebrate uh, the Grammy win or nomination or whatever it is. <laughs> soon. In fact, I will be. Nice. I will be. I will be coming to LA soon. So. Uh, Hope oh, good. Let me know. I will. I will. Um, I'll probably January, actually, 2022. So um, uh, that is in the past. I'm sorry to inform you. 2023. Uh, where am I? Uh, I'm, 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 in, yes. I'm in one of Sam's games. Sorry. I'm, yes. I'm flipping. No, for, believe me, I will forever think of 20 years ago as the 80s and the last 10 years was the 90s. I, my brain seems to be permanently parked somewhere around the year 2000 for some reason. 30 <laughs> years ago feels like the 70s. I, I don't know. I don't know why I can't seem to like the idea that 2020, the idea that 2000 was 22 years ago is my brain just stubbornly can't onboard as, as a fact. Terrifying. So yeah. <laughs> it's fa- So yes, whatever January is forthcoming, hopefully I will see you here. We'll have a coffee. Thank you, Austin.
Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.